following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 1st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We have been making our way through uh, the book of Galatians probably since, I don't know, 2005 or so. I'm not sure when we started. Feels like it's been a while, but it's been good. If you're a guest with us, we like to make our way through books of the Bible, kind of thought by thought, intention by intention, seeking to better understand what God has always been saying to His people uh, through His Word. And we find ourselves in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, and we're going to pick up this morning where we left off in verse 16. So I'm going to read it for us, maybe try to make sense of what it is we're going to do, pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in and see what God has for us. So Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse 16, this is God's Word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So this morning, we are going to be talking about the present work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when I say we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, I know a variety of thoughts and emotions stir inside all of your hearts in the room. There's a common understanding in the church these days, and in fact, we've got some books in the office to talk about this, that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. The one that's not talked about, the one that's forgotten by the church. And as I was getting ready for this, I, I pulled a book out of the library by a man named Sinclair Ferguson. Love Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote an entire book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Godhead. And, and in it, he began the introduction to the book this way. I think we should dispense with the idea that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. The assertion that the Holy Spirit, once forgotten, is now no longer, and it needs to be rephrased. For while His work has been recognized, the Spirit Himself remains to many Christians an anonymous, faceless aspect of the divine being. He said even the title, Holy Spirit, evokes a different gamut of emotions from those expressed in response to the titles Father and Son. That's why when I said we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, some of you kind of grabbed the sides of your seat. If I said we were going to talk about the Father, we were going to talk about the Son, you wouldn't have done that. Ferguson said just the title evokes a different set of emotions in our hearts. He said perhaps the fact of the situation would be better stated by describing the Holy Spirit as the unknown rather than the forgotten person of the Trinity. Where we're going to go this morning and where Paul is going to go in the rest of the letter is asking the question, do you recognize the work of God the Spirit in your life? Is He unknown to you? I think the argument that Paul is going to unpack in the rest of the letter can be summed up like this. The vibrancy the flourishing of your day-in and day-out Christian life will be directly connected to your delight and dependency 
on God the Holy Spirit in you. The vibrancy, the flourishing of your Christian life today, tomorrow, and the next day is going to be directly connected to your delight in and your dependence upon the Spirit of God at work in you. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll see what God has here for us in Galatians 5. Father, we thank you this morning that you've gathered us together, that we can trust that your word is is your word. It's alive. It's working to expose to us our deepest needs. It's working to expose to us your satisfying provision in your son. It's exposing to us who you are. And so we ask this morning that you would do the work by your spirit with your word of causing our hearts to increasingly delight in you, happy in you. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the military, there are a group of soldiers, a collection of soldiers who are often referred to as the quiet or silent professionals. These groups of soldiers prefer to operate in the background. They prefer to operate in the shadows. They're specially trained soldiers, highly skilled, highly lethal, highly effective. And their presence, it it may not be seen. People may not even be aware that they're around. But make no mistake, their presence will at some point be felt. One group in particular, one specialized group of these quiet or silent professionals is trained for the express purpose of going into a country or going into a territory and training local populations to protect and defend themselves so that the flourishing of their area begins to work itself out from the inside out. It's a fascinating group of specialized soldiers preferring to work in the background and in the shadows. And I personally enjoy reading historical accounts of these various specialized groups, these silent professionals. And it may seem strange to you, and it may indicate that I need to diversify my reading outside of theology and the Bible, but I couldn't help but think in terms of these quiet professionals this week while I began to read Galatians from the beginning up to where we are now and stitch together what Paul has said about the Holy Spirit so far. Paul has not mentioned the Holy Spirit a lot, less than a handful of times, but what Paul has said speaks volumes about the work of the Spirit present in your heart. He's there, and the vibrancy, Paul is going to argue, of our Christian life is directly connected to our delight in His presence and our dependency upon his presence. So I want to take a quick look at what Paul has already said about the Holy Spirit and how it connects with what he's saying this morning. And then you'll see in the weeks to come how it works itself out more specifically. So flipping your Bibles back to Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2. We're just going to look at what Paul has said so far. What he's implying about the present work of the Spirit in our hearts that we might delight and depend on that continued work and then see how it connects. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So if you were with us when we went through chapter 3 of Galatians, you may remember that we said foundationally and most fundamental to the definition of what it means to be a Christian is to be someone who has received God's Spirit. 
He's taken up residence. To extend the metaphor, he has invaded the heart. Now, Paul is implying that as we gather together, like we are this morning, and the gospel is being proclaimed through our songs, through our prayers, through God's word, the Holy Spirit of God is present, active, at work in you, believing the gospel that is being proclaimed. He's increasingly assuring you of what God has said that it is true. This is where he goes in his next one. Look at chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. We don't see the Holy Spirit again until we hit this spot. And Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And as we spent multiple weeks in chapter 4, we talked about how God the Holy Spirit accomplishes and then continues to apply to our heart the adoption that God has brought us into, that He is our Father, that we are His kids. And here's the implication that Paul is making in this that's going to help us as we continue on to see what he's saying this morning. The Holy Spirit of God that has taken up residence in your heart is doing the quiet yet confident work of solidifying your assurance that God really is your Father, that you are really His child. Friends, that is massive. You and I need the assurance today and tomorrow and the next day that what God has said and that what God has promised really is true. And what Paul is saying in chapter 4 is that the Holy Spirit in you the very Spirit of God is doing the work of solidifying and deepening your assurance in what God has said and in what God has promised, that He really is yours and you really are His. You know you cannot build in this life a stable building or a stable house on a shaky foundation. It's not possible. How much more so our Christian life, if you and I try to live day in and day out with our life built upon the shaky sand of doubt? This is what Paul's been arguing. Have I done enough? Does God really love me? Is there something else I've got to do to make sure He's pleased with me? If we try to establish and build and live our life on this earth before God on a shaky foundation, there's no way that our lives can stand the assault. We're setting ourselves up for the impossible, which is why the quiet work of God the Spirit in you is so beautiful. He is working day in and day out to solidify in your heart the assurance that what God has said is really true. In fact, let me show you this in a couple other places because this is so massive. Paul's going to say the same thing in a similar yet different way to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 13, Paul says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That word sealed right there, that's a real estate word. That's talking about property. What Paul is saying is that you were 
sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. You are certain He is working out the assurance that you belong to Jesus. You're His. That's what He's saying. This was a favorite theme of John, too. Just in 1 John alone, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, John says this, By this we know that He abides in us. See, God wants you to have confidence. He wants your assurance to grow. He wants your assurance that what He says really is true, to be strong. That's why He's given you His Spirit. John says, by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He's given us. The Spirit works to increase and solidify your sense of assurance that what God has said really is true. John says it again in chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. I mean, how do we know? I mean, how do we know today, tomorrow, and the next day that God abides in us and we abide in Christ? How do we know that what God has promised to us through His Son really is true for you today and tomorrow and the next day? John says, because He's given us His Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God works to bring home the quiet confidence in your heart that you're really God's, that He's really yours. That sense of assurance, that's what Paul was getting after there in chapter 4. But then we don't hear about the Holy Spirit again until chapter 5, verse 5. We talked about it last week. Paul said it's through the Spirit, by faith, that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit of God in you it's working to solidify that sense of assurance in you, right? That God, what God has said really is true. The promises of God really are true for you. And here Paul says it's the Holy Spirit's quiet work in you to keep you eager, to keep you expectant, to keep you feeling and increasing in the sense of the urgency of the hope of righteousness, to keep you on the edge of your seat for the fullness of what God has promised to come. He's working that out in you. Day in and day out, He's quietly cutting a groove deeper and deeper in your heart that longs for eternity. And as He does that, the, the death grip that you and I tend to have on our time, on our stuff, on our life here, begins to get loose. And as we saw last week, we're free for the sake of others to overflow in love because He's cultivating in us an increased expectancy and desire for the fullness of what God's promised. And this is what the Holy Spirit, Paul has said just in Galatians, is doing in you right now. And then next week we'll see more specifically, we'll jump just for a second, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The Spirit is producing something in you. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul said, is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So you can understand it this way. The Holy Spirit of God that's taken up residence in you that has invaded now, He is doing the quiet work of assuring you that what God has promised and what God has said really is true, that you really are God's child, and He's working in you to conform in you the image of the family likeness. That's what you could say right there to make you look more like the one who's loved you and saved you. That you might reflect the family likeness, the family name, so to speak. Paul hasn't talked about the Spirit of God a ton in Galatians. But what he has said 
alludes to the powerful, transformative work of God the Spirit in you now. And the vibrancy and the flourishing of our walk today, tomorrow, and the next day is going to be dependent upon and connected to how we delight in the presence of the Spirit in us and depend upon His continued work. We'll get there. One commentator said this, Galatians is helping us to see that God is offering us the two greatest realities anyone can possess in all of this fraudulent world. Do you know what they are? Not two of, but the two greatest realities. The finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. He said God's offer is not either or, it's both and. As we've seen so far in Galatians, the cross forgives us. And now what Paul wants us to understand and delight in is that the Spirit empowers us. The cross, as Paul has said, is Christ's merit to justify us. And the Spirit is Christ's energy to give us His character. The cross was a once-for-all moment. The Spirit is an endless resource. Why take the time to go back and look at what Paul has already said about the Spirit of God at work in us? Why pay attention, even for a brief moment, at what God the Spirit is already doing in us to steal our confidence, to, to strengthen our confidence in what God has said, in the promises of God for us, letting us know that we're His and He's ours, cultivating in us this longing for eternity, the fullness of what God's done, keeping us on the edge of the seat for God's promises. Why do we take time to go back and be reminded of what He's doing? Well, what Paul's going to say in verses 16 through 18 is simply this. It matters because every single day you and I wake up in the middle of a war. You and I wake up in the middle of a battle. You and I wake up in the middle of a fight. See if you can hear it. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Every single day, you and I wake up in the middle of a war. And it's not a battle against flesh and blood, but it is the most personal of battles raging inside of our heart. See, what Paul is saying is that prior to the invasion, to stretch the metaphor, of the Holy Spirit into your heart, Prior to the Holy Spirit taking up residency in your heart, your sinful nature ruled your heart absolutely unopposed. No opposition at all. But now, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has moved in. He's taken that territory that once belonged to your flesh, and He has begun a process of renewal from the inside. And it's here, in that process and in your heart, that Paul describes a battle raging, a conflict he, des he describes as a conflict between desires, the desires of your flesh and the desires of your spirit. And so if we're going to understand the conflict that we wake up in and, and why we should continue to delight and depend upon the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we need to better understand the conflict itself. So, so what does Paul mean when he talks about the desires of the flesh? Now, there's something that I found out this week that I had never understood before, and that happens when you're studying to teach things to people. Like you read things a lot, and you can you know, keep them in your mind, and you can learn, you can grow, but when you study to teach something, 
you begin to find out all kinds of things that maybe you didn't understand before. And I found it amazing this week when I was studying for this sermon that when Paul talks about the desires of the flesh here, in the original language, that's actually singular. I never noticed that before. It actually says the desire of the flesh. In fact, if you use the New Living Translation of the Bible, that translation actually gets it right. It talks about what your sinful nature craves. What Paul is trying to describe is the fact that in every single one of us, each of us have a deep, singular craving. Way down at the deep recesses of our heart, our sinful nature has one overarching craving, and that is the craving for autonomy. That is the craving for self-exaltation. Now, it looks different on the surface in all of our lives, but underneath, it's the same thing. So no matter where you were born or what family you were born into, whether or not you identify yourself as conservative or liberal, on this issue, you are bipartisan. You were born allergic to God. Sin has produced in all of us a deep, singular craving to want something other than God. And what we want more than that is the exaltation of ourselves. We want autonomy. And in this craving of the flesh, this desire for autonomy, we reject the free grace of God in Christ. We reject the righteousness and justification that comes through Christ. And we find ourselves, as Paul will say in verse 18, still under the law, still wanting and needing to prove ourselves, to define and identify our own righteousness and our own means of justification. And the fruit of this craving, the fruit of this desire, I mean, just listen to what Paul says. You'll get to it in the next couple of weeks, but Paul will go on to say the fruit of this craving and desire is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, orgies and things like these. The sinful craving of our heart, the desire of the flesh, could not have more tragic consequences on our life. And in particular, you can look at it in the way that it impacts the way we relate to each other. In fact, some of you may have read the book, but Dave Harvey wrote a book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. And if you have not yet realized that's what marriage is, it's two sinners saying I do, right? And Harvey says this in his book, what if you and I abandoned the idea that the problems and weaknesses in our marriage are caused by a lack of information, dedication, or communication. What if you saw your problems as they truly are, caused by a war within your heart? In fact, let's, let's stretch it out even farther. I'll read it again. What if you and I abandoned the idea that the problems and weaknesses in our relationships, let's take it just out of the context of marriage, in our relationships. Now we're talking about not just our marriages, not just our parenting, but our relationships with each other. Our relationships with those that God has put us in contact with and connection with. What if we abandon the idea that the problems and weaknesses in our relationships are caused by a lack of information, dedication, or communication? What if we saw our problems in our relationships as they truly are, caused by a war within our heart? Because this is the kind of thing we're going to talk about even tonight. When we deal with pride, prejudice, and the gospel, 
the issue of racial tension and things like white supremacy, what if we were willing as Christians to bring the perspective and the gift that we have on what's happening here and we were willing together to abandon the idea that all the conflict is singularly caused by a lack of communication, a lack of dedication, a lack of willingness even, as he says here. Yeah, we've got to deal with what's going on in our heart. Friends, the craving, the impulse, the longing of the flesh, it ruled utterly unopposed in your life until the Holy Spirit invaded. And your sense of self was dethroned. Now the battle begins. But there's something else that we often miss in these verses too, and I want you to see. Did you know that the Holy Spirit of God, alive and at work in you, has desires as well? Have you ever thought about that? Paul says, here's the battle. It's between the desires of your sinful self, the desires of your flesh, the underarching desire for autonomy and self-righteousness, and the desires of the Spirit. The Spirit wants something for you and in you as well. I don't think it's captured better than it's captured in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 12, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you things that are to come. I love verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God in you, alive and at work in you, has desires for you as well. And His desire is to glorify Christ in you and through you. That Christ be glorified in you and you be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ and that Christ be glorified through you. Jesus said that the Spirit of God is guiding you into all truth, glorifying Him, glorifying Jesus in you. He's building up your confidence in Christ. The desires of the Spirit, the craving, the longing of God the Spirit in you is to glorify Christ in you and to increasingly conform you into His image and likeness. Now, because He's taken up residence in your heart, because He has dethroned that sense and desire and craving for the exaltation of yourself, now that His desire is to see Christ formed in you and glorified through you, that at your deepest recesses of your heart is what you want the most. Now, what your heart wants more than anything is for Christ to be formed in you and Christ to be glorified through you. You want to reflect increasingly the image and likeness of your Savior. And this is the locus of the battle. Now there's a competing agenda for glory and exaltation. That sinful self that still remains has been dethroned. It still wants to exalt you. It still wants to glorify your autonomy. And as Paul says, it's opposed to the desire of the Spirit to exalt Christ and to form Christ in you. And it keeps you from doing that which you want to do. What you want to do now more than anything is to be conformed to the image of Christ and to see Him glorified in you and through you. Which is why, again, I think if you're using the New Living Translation, they nail this spot. They get it right. The translation here of these verses in Galatians 5 and the New Living 
says the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you're not free to carry out your good intentions. Because what you want now by the Spirit of God taking up residence in your heart is for Christ to be glorified in you and through you. And that old self that's been dethroned is still present and it's still fighting and it's still battling, opposing the desire of the Spirit in you. So that like Paul would say to the Romans in Romans 7, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, man, evil, that sinful craving, that desire of the flesh for self-exaltation, for autonomy, it lies close at hand. Friends, Paul in these verses He wants you to recognize, as he's been trying to communicate throughout the letter, the presence, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and now he wants you to recognize that you wake up in a battle and in need. This is where we need to talk. This is where we need to understand what he's saying to make sure it's coming across right. Paul wants you to understand the battle that you wake up in. So you can ask it in a question. Do you recognize the conflict Do you recognize the war? Do you recognize the fight? Do you recognize the battle that you wake up into every day? See, when Paul's talking about this battle in your heart between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, I want you to understand this. This will help somebody in here. I'm sure, I hope it really will. I think it will. What Paul is saying is that a Christian is not someone who experiences zero craving for the sinful desires. Some people take these verses and take them to mean that a real Christian is someone who experiences zero sense of the craving of the desire of the flesh. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying a real Christian is someone who experiences zero craving or desire for sin. In fact, if you've gone and grabbed the commentary on Galatians that Martin Luther wrote, I've been telling you about, Luther will say this to that idea. If you feel the desires of your sinful nature... Do not despair of your salvation. If you feel the desires of your sinful nature, that craving, that desire for self-exaltation, autonomy that gives birth to all manner of the fruit that we read earlier, don't despair of your salvation. In fact, Luther says, the more godly you are, the more you actually feel the battle. Luther says, true saints are not sticks and stones that are never moved by anything and never feel any desire to the sinful nature. No, on the contrary, true saints, as Luther would say, or real Christians, as he'll refer to them, feel the temptation, feel the craving of the sinful desire, even give in to it at times. But here's the thing, they don't give in to it laying down. True saints, or real Christians, as Luther would call them, are those that are at war with those desires. Who are at war by the Spirit of God in them, with the desires of their flesh. Another way to say it, the way the Puritans would say it, is that true saints are real Christians. They love the fight. In fact, J.C. Ryle wrote probably the best book I could probably commend to anyone on the idea of holiness or growth in Christ's likeness and maturity. And in that book, he had an entire chapter called The Fight. And in that chapter, Ryle said, a true Christian... A true saint is known not only for his inner peace, but also for his inner warfare. Friends, we wake up in a battle. 
but we're not left to our own resources. That's the beauty of verse 16. Verse 16 has a promise attached to it, and the promise attached to it for those who, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God in you will ultimately win the war. The question for us as God's people is, do we love the fight? Will we learn to embrace the battle? Yes, the Spirit of God in you is cultivating in you a longing for the hope of righteousness, a longing and an urgency, keeping you on the edge of your seat for the day to come when the battle won't exist anymore at all. But as difficult as it may seem to wake up today, tomorrow, and the next day with a battle raging inside of our heart, a worse fate would be for you and I to wake up today, tomorrow, or the next day complacent to the reality of the craving of the flesh in our heart. In fact, John Piper will say it far more succinctly and elegantly than I'll ever say it. He'll say, if you and I find ourselves in this place of complacency, we need to understand that serenity in our sin is ultimately death to our heart. A true Christian is not one that doesn't feel the cravings, not one that doesn't at times give in to the cravings. A true Christian is one that fights, that's at war with the desires of the flesh. Serenity in sin is death. And Paul wants us to see, to recognize, and to understand that the Spirit of God has indeed landed. He has indeed invaded. He has indeed taken up residence in our heart to do battle with the sinful desire of the flesh. So take heart, be comforted if it feels like sometimes your heart is indeed a battlefield. The sign the old Puritans would say of whether or not you're indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you're aware of them and you're at war with them. So let's listen to Paul. He gives us, in a sense, kind of our orders in going forward. Aware of the fight that we're in, aware of the resource that is ours, the present power of God the Spirit in us. Paul says, walk by the Spirit then. Be led by the Spirit. Friends, those two phrases sum up the practical reality of living day in and day out as a Christian. In fact, one commentator will say in Paul's vocabulary, to walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit means simply this, to go where the Spirit is going, to listen to His voice, to discern His will, to follow His guidance. In Paul's letters alone, he talks like this over 30 times. He simply is telling us in the midst of the battle, in the face of reality, the desires of our flesh waging war against the deeper desires now of the Spirit to see Christ exalted in us and through us, what you and I are called to do in our fight is to go where the Spirit goes, to let Him lead not to do some kind of spiritual gymnastics in this, not some kind of special Holy Spirit kung fu. Take one step and another step to walk by the Spirit, His enablement, His leading, His direction, His power, 
be led by the Spirit. Not in our own strength, not in our own wisdom, not in our own grit, to be led by Him who has taken up residence in us, knowing that the battle is stacked in our favor. In fact, the way Paul writes this grammatically is simply this. You and I in the fight, in the battle, are to be always walking one step in front of the other by the Spirit. So one pastor would talk about this, and he'll say this, and it was very helpful to me. Thinking about what it is to walk by the Spirit, he says, you need to understand that Christian living by the Spirit is not a technique you need to master. And that's what everybody would want you to think. All right, now I'm supposed to walk by the Spirit. Now, how do I do it? What's the formula? How do I know I'm walking by the Spirit? What do I do when I wake up tomorrow, the next day, the next day? Here's the direction for it. He says it's not a formula or a technique you can follow. All we do is continue to open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Why? Because He loves to help us. If we would keep depending upon, he says, and drawing upon his present power in us, you and I will stand amazed at the resilience he creates in us. But make no mistake, our life is war. Christian living, even with the Spirit, is not easy. Every single one of us has some deep-seated crazy still within our hearts. If you long to be increasingly free from the grip of the craving desires of the flesh, if you long to increasingly see Christ formed in you and exalted through you, Paul would say, take heart. Know this. The Spirit is at work doing battle in your heart. And you know what? God is going to get the victory. His Spirit is alive and at work within you. You and I, we simply need to follow his lead, listen to his voice, and go where he goes. You and I, we just need to walk one foot in front of the other. So here, I'll give us two steps. You ready? One foot and then the other. First one, how about you and I begin to pray for the Spirit to do his work within us that he's promised to do? There's a step for us to take. How about we pray for the Spirit to do His work in us that He's promised to do? In fact, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So it's the Holy Spirit of God that stirs our affections. It's the Holy Spirit of God that solidifies our sense of assurance. It's the Holy Spirit of God who puts to death the sinful cravings that are within us. What if we were to cry out to God the Father to increase His work in us by His Spirit? Guess what? God's not going to hold back on that. He's not going to say, no, 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 not today. You could sum it up this way. It is the will of God for you to be led by His Spirit. So how about you and I take a step? How about we look at walking like this? How about we ask God by His Spirit to drive nails into the heart of our most favorite and coveted sin? That in us, the craving to it might die. That we would die to it and it would die to us. How about we ask God by His Spirit in us doing battle with that thing that we secretly harbor and desire so deeply that He would choke it off deprive it of all sense of support. Friends, how about we rely upon His 
ongoing work in us and ask God to do that with confidence. How about we just take the step? And how about we put the other foot in front of the other? How about you and I increasingly make use of the means of grace that God's given us? Friends, how about you and I walk by the Spirit as we allow our hearts to rest satisfied and happy in the promises of God? I didn't come up with that phrase. George Mueller came up with that phrase. Mueller said, you allow the Spirit to control you. Another way of saying, you allow the Spirit to lead you, you walk by the Spirit, you keep in step with the Spirit, you allow the Spirit to control you by keeping your heart happy in God. It's the Spirit of God in you that's increasing your assurance and the promises of God for you. Where are the promises of God for you best declared? In His Word. Who opens up the reality of God's Word to us that we might see it and believe it? It's the Spirit of God. So how do we keep our heart happy in God and rest in the promises of God? We allow by the means of grace that God has given us through His Word for His Holy Spirit to solidify our confidence in His promises as He illuminates them to us through His Word. And we just take a step. In fact, in his autobiography, Mueller would say, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I forget this so often. He said, the first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And what is then the food for the inner man? Mueller said, not prayer. It's the Word of God. As the Spirit of God does the work in us to quietly increase our assurance in the promises of God for us, He does that as we engage with Him, rehearsing daily the promises of God to us through His Word. As we worship God through His Word day in and day out, the Holy Spirit illuminates the promises of God to us and assures us of the promise of God for us. And we take a step. We listen. And we go where He goes. And He keeps our heart happy in God. And we come together. And we hear the promises of God declared in the songs we sing. We hear the promise of God and the assurance of the promises in the prayers we pray. We hear the promises of God proclaimed from God's Word, and together we worship and rehearse the gospel and the promises of God to each other, and the Spirit of God assures us that the promises again are yes and amen for us in Jesus. How about we take a step, make use of the means of grace that God has given us? We get a moment here in just a second to do it again as we rehearse and remember the promises of God to us through the gospel as we receive communion together. And in just a moment, as you're invited to come forward, if you're a follower of Christ, you'll take a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sin. You'll dip it in a cup, remembering the blood of Christ spilled out for your forgiveness. And guess what? The Holy Spirit of God alive and at work in you is doing the work of stirring your affection to be happy in the promise of God to you through His Son. Even now, even then, as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, the Spirit of God is bringing to bear on your heart the quiet confidence, the quiet assurance that you really are His children. He really is your Father. 
And so the question that I think Paul would leave us with today to reflect on, to deal with before we respond is simply this. Will you embrace today all that is yours in Jesus? Will you embrace today all that is yours in Jesus? The finished work of Christ on the cross for your justification, for your righteousness, and the endless power of God the Holy Spirit for your continued battle and transformation for the forming of Christ in you. Will you embrace today all that is yours in Christ? Friends, our vibrancy and the flourishing of our day in and day out Christian life is going to be directly connected to and dependent upon how delighted we are in the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in us and dependent upon the work of the Spirit in us and for us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect. And in that time of reflection, what we're asking you to do and what we're wanting you to do is to deal with God and let God deal with you. There are actually some prayers on your worship guide on the back of it for some of you that might want some guidance in that, but we're asking God to do something in you and for you to cry out to Him, to thank Him, to to repent. This is your time to be with Him. And then, for those who have tasted of the grace and mercy of God through faith and repentance, we are going to respond by receiving communion, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sins, knowing that even in that mean of grace of remembering and celebrating, God the Spirit is again in us, man, cultivating not only the longing for the fullness of the promise, but solidifying our assurance that the promise is yes for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll give you a chance to reflect and respond. Father, we thank you this morning that your word declares to us in the battle that rages in our heart, we're not left to our own resources. We're not left to our own wisdom, not left to our own ingenuity, not left even to our own grit and determination, but your spirit that raised your son from the dead is alive and at work in us, doing battle in our hearts against the sinful craving that once ruled us. Lord, Lord, you've given us so much more than we even recognize. God, I would ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, in our hearts this morning, Lord, you would do the miraculous work of making each of us happy in you. That we would recognize and delight in the presence of your Spirit in our heart and today and tomorrow and the next day be increasingly dependent upon your work in us by your Spirit. God, help us to let go of our sense of of effort to earn something for you. Wake us up to the fight that we're in. Lord, but help us to see that in that fight, we're dependent not on our own best effort. We have you. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning, your promise to us, and we ask that, Lord, it would transform us, that it would make us happy in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.